Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. In the wake of the police murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and too many more people, criminal justice reform has surged to the forefront of the national debate. From the racial biases in policing to the criminalization of poverty and for-profit prisons, our criminal justice system is broken. I've asked my friend Eliza Orleans on the show this week to talk about these issues and more. Eliza spent years as a public defender in New York City and is now a candidate for Manhattan District Attorney. You may also recognize her as a two-time contestant on Survivor and as a contestant on The Amazing Race. My name's Eliza Orleans, and I'm running for Manhattan District Attorney. And with the situation in New York continuing to deteriorate, the Rickers Island prison is an area that has been particularly chaotic in the light of COVID-19. The last 10 minutes of Survivor last night featured some of the most interesting moments in the show's history. Eliza tried to play a fake immunity idol made by Ozzy, but without the protection of the real idol, her tribe voted her out. The state of California took a landmark step toward criminal justice reform today as Governor Jerry Brown signed a bill that would eliminate cash bail for those awaiting trial. Cy Vance Jr. has been making headlines for not prosecuting Harvey Weinstein when the Hollywood mogul was accused of sexual harassment back in 2015. Critics say financial contributions by Weinstein's lawyers to Vance's campaign could have played a role in the DA's decision. Protests continue tonight across the tri-state. New York pushing for more police reform at the same time. My name is Eliza Orleans, and I'm running for Manhattan District Attorney because we have a criminal legal system that is cruel and unjust. And if we want to change the system, we have to change the DA. Sorry, not sorry. Eliza, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. I'm so proud. You're running for District Attorney of Manhattan. I think, first of all, can you just walk us through the job of a district attorney? What has the role traditionally been? Running for district attorney is such a huge undertaking, but it's probably one of the most important elected offices that people vote for. And I think many people don't quite realize how critical it is, nor what a DA does. The district attorney makes all prosecuting decisions, what crimes get prosecuted, who gets prosecuted, what sentences are sought whether bail is requested, what plea bargains are offered, whether someone has the opportunity for treatment. So there's so many huge overarching decisions made by the DA that it's so critical that we elect people who actually care about human beings and also keeping our city safe. And I think that that leads to my next question, which is how do you think that the job should be done differently than it is right now? Well, right now in New York, but also just in America, we have a system of injustice. I mean, people will say that our criminal justice system is broken, but it's really not. It's operating exactly as it was designed, exactly as a rigged system is supposed to, which is to disenfranchise and continue to marginalize people who the system was stacked against from the beginning. So we need 
a system that is truly just and that does make us safer. Right now, we're sold this false choice between a punitive criminal legal system and public safety. But the reality is when we lock people up, whether it's for three years, three months, three weeks, or even just three days, they're exponentially more likely to reoffend or get rearrested. And I've stood beside over 3,000 people as a public defender, and I've fought for each person. I've seen them as a human being. And I think we need someone as district attorney who would do just that, who will see the humanity in each person and not perpetuate this lock them up, throw away the key mentality that the current Manhattan DA has perpetuated. I think it goes beyond just the Manhattan DA, right? I mean, where did, how do we get to this point, do you think? I think that there's a lot of just structural injustice and systemic inequity and structural racism in our criminal legal system. I mean, if you look at the disproportionate way that we lock up people of color, LGBTQIA folks, people who are poor, it is a system that is rigged in favor of the 1% and against everyone else. People living paycheck to paycheck, nurses, teachers, working class folks, the system is rigged against them. And so we've gotten to this point by just allowing the status quo to continue and not speaking out against injustice and not electing people who care about human beings and who want to see a change. You've been a public defender in New York for quite some time. Tell us about the people that you represent. Who are they? What are the crimes they've been charged with? Yeah, so I've been a public defender for over a decade in Manhattan and represented thousands of people charged with crimes from low-level minor offenses. I mean, I remember my first year as a public defender, I walked into night court, which is where we predominantly pick up our cases. You know, court is from 9 a.m. to 1 a.m. every day of the year, Christmas, New Year's, and people are working. And I walk in and I, I met a man who had worked at the same grocery store for 25 years. He'd made his way up to assistant manager. He'd never been in trouble in his life. The night before he had been closing up the store, it was around 11 p.m. He bought two bags of groceries with his employee discount to bring home to his family. And he got on the subway and he set the groceries next to him on the seats next to him on an uncrowded subway car. And at a certain stop as he was approaching his home in Upper Manhattan, two uniformed NYPD officers got on the Mm. train. They grabbed his groceries, dumped them to the ground, Mm. placed him in handcuffs, and took him to jail where he spent the night for the crime of occupying multiple seats on a transit facility. Taking up (sighs) two seats on the subway. I mean, this man spent the night in jail and they threw out his groceries. I mean, I was so heartbroken and frustrated and that has only mounted over a decade of doing this and seeing people's lives be just affected in this horrible way and focusing on crimes and putting resources into things that don't make our city better or safer in any way. And how much of that do you think is just police brutality? In that moment, they have the choice, right? They have the choice to be like, you know what, this guy's taking up two seats, but he's got his groceries. I'm just going to overlook that. I think that there is some pressure. You know, we just need to kind of rethink the entire system because the way that police are forced to hit quotas and make certain numbers of arrests and are told to police the subways and are told to do. I don't think that someone becomes a police officer and thinks to themselves, I want to arrest someone for taking up two seats on the subway. That is just 
perpetuating such a terrible system. And I think that we just need kind of an overhaul of thinking about how we police communities, especially when it comes to these crimes of poverty or people who are being targeted because of the neighborhood in which they live or the color of their skin. Yeah, well, you also talked about one of your clients who was jailed for evading a subway fare. I mean, do you think we've criminalized poverty? Absolutely. I was on probation for a year. It was $50 a month. At the time, I didn't have anywhere to live. I didn't have any money. I didn't have a job. No, nothing. And the, the terror of every, every time it's, or oh, I got to go in on the 15th. I've only got 20 bucks, you know? And then, you, of course, you'll starve yourself to come up with the 50. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Private probation can put a person's life into a downward spiral, particularly if they're already living in poverty. We have criminalized poverty in a way that has made it virtually impossible for people, once they're in the criminal legal system, to get out. Because if you think about the fact that we're locking people up for, even if it's just a matter of days, I mean, if someone's locked up for two days, let's say, and they've been locked up because of a fair evasion, so they didn't pay $2.75, and they get locked up, maybe they miss work that day, so they have an hourly job and they, they lose their job. And then that forces them into a position where they're no longer able to pay their rent. So they lose their apartment. And then maybe if they're a single parent, they've lost their children to foster care. And so at that point, what options have we left this person with who maybe didn't even have the subway fare to pay the $2.75 to get onto the train to get to their job in the first place. And so we've created this situation where we're just cycling people through rather than addressing the underlying harms and causes and making sure people have the resources they need to survive. And then cash bail just makes it all worse, right? Absolutely. Cash bail is just something that perpetuates a system of true inequity because in this country, you're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. And yet, that really only applies to those who have the money to buy their freedom. At its heart, America's bail system sounds pretty simple. If you're charged with a crime, the court might ask for an amount of money as bond and then return it to you once you show up for trial. And if you have that money, it's no big deal. But if you don't, you can be in big trouble. Just look at one example, a man called Miguel. Uh, he was arrested for driving with a suspended license. The court set bail at $1,000 and he had a choice, pay it or await a trial in Rikers Island. So people who can't afford to pay bail, whether that bail is $200, $2,000, $2,000,000, dollars it doesn't matter. I mean, if someone can't afford $200 to get out, then they sit there in jail and wait to fight their case. I mean, I'm sure you know of Khalif Browder, who was, mm -hmm. who was a teenager who was accused of stealing a backpack and his family couldn't afford to pay bail. He spent nearly three years on Rikers Island, much of that in solitary confinement. And finally, the case against him was dismissed. They didn't have the evidence against him. And he got out and ultimately killed himself. And it was because of the trauma that he experienced of being locked up, of being in solitary. And it was simply because he was too poor to afford to buy his freedom while he fought his case. Well, I want to talk a little bit about Rikers Island Jail for a minute. Uh, this is where many of the people charged or convicted of crimes in New York are incarcerated. Is that right? Exactly. Where I'm staying, approximately 49 or 50 inmates to the dorm. We're not spread out six feet at least from them one another. 
the beds are approximately 12 inches apart from each other. They're not sanitizing the houses or any place like they're supposed to be. There are inmates who are quarantined because they have the virus. Once the inmates were tested positive for COVID-19, nobody in the house has been tested to see if they have also the virus. How many people there have not been convicted of a crime? There are statistics and data put out every day about the percentages of people who've not been convicted versus who have been convicted of low-level offenses versus who've been convicted of more serious charges who are awaiting transfer upstate. So that number changes daily, but it's typically around three-quarters of the people at Rikers Island have not yet, have not been convicted of anything. And it's either people who are in on bail, who are in on a technical parole violation, technical parole violation meaning they did something like missed a meeting, missed curfew, possessed a laptop, tested positive for marijuana. I mean, these are the things that we are incarcerating people for. You know, they say that your hearing is supposed to be within 90 days, but often people spend 10, 11, 12 months waiting for a hearing on a technical parole violation. And the majority of people that we're locking up have not been convicted of anything. I want to also talk about the issue of for-profit prisons, because I think it's just adding to this problem. Like you said before, people have to reach a quota. Describe for my listeners what that means, the quota. Well, there's been a lot of talk and a couple police officers came forward a number of years ago and anonymously spoke about the pressure that was coming from the NYPD internally to make a certain number of arrests per month and that they would lose certain shifts or they would lose overtime or they would lose certain things if they didn't meet that number of arrests that they were supposed to hit each month. So I'm wondering if it works the same way as immigration detention centers, which is they have to reach a certain quota of occupied beds in order to get the federal subsidies that they need to function. So I'm wondering if the role for for profit prisons in our justice system is the same way, where the certain amount of beds have to be filled in order to receive their contractual money. Well, I think that sometimes drawing the distinction between for-profit prisons and other prisons doesn't take into account that basically the prison industrial complex operates universally and they are profiting to the tune of billions of dollars off of our most vulnerable members of society. For-profit companies now run many prisons in the U.S., These companies are typically contracted by the government on the strength of affirmations that they will uphold the rights and welfare of inmates all while saving taxpayers money. However, a 2013 report from the anti-privatization group in the public interest recently investigated these prison contracts. Out of a total of 62 contracts, more than half had quotas stating that prisons must have an 80 to 100% occupancy at all times. If the state and local governments fail to meet the quota, they often pay thousands, sometimes millions in taxpayer money for unused beds, which means it's in the state's interest to keep prisons full, regardless of whether or not crime rates are falling. People who are already going through the trauma of being incarcerated and everything that comes along with that are unable to call their family because they can't afford the amount per minute JPay charges to speak on the phone to their family members. 
So for-profit prisons, I think, like, kind of excludes the fact that this is happening across the country. This is happening in all prisons that people are charged. I mean, I can't even think of how many hours of phone calls that I've listened to over the years of clients who are incarcerated who get that automated notification. You have one minute remaining, and they're speaking to their loved one, and they're trying to have human connection. And in fact, the data shows that people who are able to stay connected while they're incarcerated do better. And those are people who are able to integrate back into society and have an easier time with reentry than folks who have no connection. And yet we are causing people to not be able to do that because they don't have enough minutes to pay or enough money to pay for the minutes to speak to their loved ones. Do for-profit prisons treat inmates differently than public institutions? What do you think? I think that generally prisons are horrific. I mean, they have horrific conditions. And recently, I think some videos have come out where people have had contraband phones and taken videos of what it really looks like inside and the overcrowding and the rats and the number of people. I mean, 40 people to a toilet, the spread of infection, which obviously we saw with COVID, the lack of access to hand sanitizer, soap, adequate medical care. I mean, it's just dehumanizing on every level. So I want to talk about your campaign now, and I want to talk about your vision for criminal justice reform from policing to sentencing. How would things be different if you were a district attorney right now? Well, We need old transformational change in the district attorney's office here in Manhattan, and truly, we need it across the country. And I will be a different kind of prosecutor, the kind who has seen the other side of our criminal, quote, justice system and its impact on people. I know what happens after an indictment, after a conviction. I see that each person is a human being. These are moms and dads, sons and daughters, husbands and wives. These are people's brothers and sisters that are being dehumanized by the district attorney, that they refer to them as criminals, felons, inmates, bodies, prisoners. I mean, it's just dehumanizing on every level. And instead of thinking about them as human beings, as members of people's families, as to what would happen. And so every policy I will enact as Manhattan district attorney will come from the standpoint of understanding the effect of the power of prosecution. And instead of using the tools being used to lock people up, I will use those tools to help people because I've seen how people truly need that. And that's the kind of DA that we need. Do you think that there is a need for prisons in our society overall? I mean, what would you say to someone who said, you know, there's people that commit violent crimes and they're probably going to do it again? Should those people be kept from the rest of us for public safety reasons? What are your views? Well, I think that we have to reframe how we think about the system because right now, the way that the criminal legal system operates, and there's a brilliant 
scholar, her name is Danielle Sarad, who talks about what's called restorative justice and how right now, let's say I were walking down a hill with the personification of our criminal legal system and someone ran up behind me and like shoved me to the ground and I tumbled down the hill and I broke my leg and I was laying there bleeding out at the bottom of the hill. And I was like, help, help. All the criminal legal system could do for me would be chase down the person who did it and beat them up too. make sure they were hurt also. And so our system is not actually doing anything right now to help victims. It's not keeping the public safe. It's not helping victims. People are being traumatized on all sides of this. And so by addressing underlying harms and figuring out how to make it so that people have their needs addressed and don't hurt people and other people who are hurt don't then go on to hurt people because we know that abuse is so cyclical. And so I think that there just needs to be kind of a reimagining of the whole thing rather than thinking about, oh, we need to lock someone up in order to keep people safe. Because I think that it's more complicated than this narrative of just locking people up versus public safety. Is there a country that is doing this better than we have been doing it? I would say in Scandinavia, we've seen they have a way of holding people accountable for their actions while not putting them in a position where they are recidivating at such a huge rate. Here in the United States, the recidivism rates are extremely high. And that's because of, I think, we, we just continue to harm people. We don't think about how we can make people functioning members of society and figure out how to create a system that addresses the harm, but also gives people opportunities. I think that the way that they do it is they basically have a system where, where people are separated from their community, but are able to work and have the equivalent of a home, not like just a jail cell, but like a little apartment. And they have like a functioning society within closed boundaries. And then they have a recidivism rate of like, I think it's less than 5%. Eliza, since the police murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, there has been just a really a national outcry to defund police departments. What does that mean to you? And how would that work in a city like New York? We need to invest in communities and not the police. Uh, there are billions of dollars of state budgets that have been allocated to policing, to surveillance, and to punishment instead of focusing on fostering equitable, healthy, and safe communities. For years, our country has criminalized addiction and poverty to the tune of 10 million arrests a year. Mass incarceration has not provided the public safety that we need and want, and it never will. Um, and our criminal justice system is one that should focus on perpetrators of real harm, not on petty crimes that take productive citizens out of society. So what we need to do, and we could certainly do this in a city like New York, is reallocate some of the funding that is given to police. In New York, you know, some stats say $6 billion, others say closer to $11 billion, depending on what you exactly count. But we need to reallocate those funds to support people and services in marginalized communities. That money can be put back into social services for mental health issues, uh, domestic violence, for homelessness, and so much more. We should be funding schools, hospitals, housing, education, um, food, things that actually keep us safe. And, and to create 
systemic change, the whole system has to change. And we need to focus our government budgets on programs beyond policing. That is an essential step toward achieving our goals. And furthermore, as Manhattan District Attorney, I will be a force for safety without fear and justice without overreach. We need a new vision for New York. And post George Floyd's murder and everything else has shown us that that is exactly what we need to be doing um, rather than allowing the system to continue to operate in the way that it always has. I want to talk more about the racial disparities in how we treat crime and really the disparities across the board, gender disparities, racial disparities. Do we treat men and women differently? What about people who are trans or non-binary or someone else on the gender spectrum? Just tell me the differences in how we treat people. I think that Cory Booker says it incredibly well. If you've heard him talk about the war on drugs, for example, is he says the war on drugs is not a war on drugs. It's a war on people. It's a war on poor people and people who are disabled and people who are suffering from addiction and disproportionately black and brown people and LGBTQIA folks. I continue the fight like I've done from day one in the Senate to reform a broken criminal justice system that has one out of every three incarcerated women on the planet Earth is in the United States of America. One out of every four incarcerated people in the United States of America, a country with only 5% of the globe's population. Overwhelmingly nonviolent, overwhelmingly because of this war on drugs, which has not been a war on drugs. It's been a war on people, not all people, low-income people, addicted people, mentally ill people, veterans disproportionately incarcerated by the drug war, and, and God, black and brown people. This is who it's disproportionately affecting. For example, there's no difference between blacks and whites for drug use or drug sale. And yet, if you're black, you're three or four times more likely to be arrested and prosecuted and locked up for those crimes. So we operate within a profoundly racist system. And we live in a nation where black men are incarcerated or under criminal supervision now more than the entire number who were enslaved in 1850. We see the harm that this perpetuates. I mean, I've represented a trans woman who was taken directly to Rikers Island and she was headed to the women's facility, Rose M. Singer Center. And she drew attention to the fact that she knew that she was going to be stripped naked and um, put in the showers and searched when she was taken there and that this was going to expose her. And so she let the corrections officers know, and they used horrible slurs against her. They called her awful things. And then they took her directly to male general population. And she was terrified for her life. She was terrified of being assaulted. And ultimately, now a trans housing unit exists because she allowed people to bring forth a lawsuit on her behalf as the named plaintiff to get the New York City Human Rights Commission involved in changing the ways in which we lock up trans women. But this is something that's a huge issue.
So 51% of public school students are white, 16% are black, but black students get 42% of multiple suspension discipline. In schools, whites just 31%. Black students are 31% of school-related arrests and are suspended and expelled three times more than white kids. Expelled and suspended students are three times more likely to be in contact with the juvenile justice system in the next year. Out-of-school suspensions increased by 10% since 2000. So let's talk about the school-to-prison pipeline. In-school policing is harming students by taking them out of school and helping funnel them into prisons. It's called the school-to-prison pipeline. We're talking about a structure of codes and punishments that criminalizes kids as early as preschool and increases their chances of ending up in the criminal justice system. 99% of New York City school children who were handcuffed in 2016 were Black or Latinx. This happens when school resource officers are called into classrooms to discipline students, sometimes for something as small as violating a dress code or grabbing candy from a teacher's desk. How should criminal justice and young people intersect? Oh, God. I'm glad that you're bringing up those numbers because those numbers are real. They truly exist. And the racial disparities in the way that students are suspended and expelled, even as early as I think preschool, we see that these disparities exist. And so we need to create alternatives as opposed to just thinking about having police in schools and arresting children for things that could be handled in a different way. We need to end the school to prison pipeline. We need to make sure that people are receiving the services they need. We need to be investing in communities. We need to be thinking about ways to address the trauma and harms that may exist for people rather than just thinking about how to punish them. And I think that we need to figure out how to change these trends. And hopefully when we get better people in office, in local offices across the country, that we will think about ways of investing in communities and not just incarcerating and punishing students and children. You know, I think that New York was one of the last states to stop prosecuting 15-year-olds as adults. I mean, I've represented children who are as young as, yeah, 15, 16. I mean, they come in, they, they look like they're 12, and they're being mm. prosecuted in adult court. They're walking in in handcuffs. They're terrified. These are children, and children should be taken care of as children and not ever prosecuted as adults. Well, I mean, everything that you've been talking about feels so incredibly overwhelming. How do we fix it? And also, how do we fix something that seems to be knotted so deeply into politics and government and industry? I mean, is there a way out of this? I hope so. I remain optimistic about being able to reform our criminal legal system. It's why I'm running for office. I never anticipated doing this. All I ever wanted to do with my life was be a public defender. It's what I thought I would do forever. I thought I was a lifer. And I became overwhelmingly heartbroken and frustrated and just disillusioned with how 
unable I was to fight back from a position of no power as a public defender standing on the side of the underdog in every case. And I realized that if we do elect better people as DAs across the country, I mean, we've seen it in San Francisco and in Philadelphia and in Boston, that they are able to make real changes. I love my job. I love my work. I love my clients. But there are things that I hate. I hate how this country treats poor people. I hate how individuals treat poor people. And so that's my hate that keeps me fighting. And I just like to fight. Like, I've always been a fighter. It just so happens this is the fight I'm in. When someone is charged with a crime but cannot afford an attorney, the court is required to provide one. In most cases, that person is a so-called public defender. But what if that public defender already has too many clients to serve as competent representation? That's a situation playing out in many states, including Missouri, where public defenders have started refusing cases, throwing a wrench into the machinery of the criminal justice system. Until we start speaking out about these issues and being intellectually honest about what's really happening in our carceral system, in our criminal punishment bureaucracy, you know, and stop saying that this is justice because this is not justice. This isn't justice for all. That's certainly true. And so now we're challenging this narrative. People are stepping up and running for these offices and we are trying to make changes. And so I'm hopeful that we will see a change in our criminal legal system within the next few years. Well, New York would be lucky to have you as their DA. How can people learn more about your candidacy? Thank you. I would love for everyone to get involved. You can go to elizaorleans.com and sign up to volunteer and learn more about our campaign and get involved because we need to build a national movement. We need a coalition. We need people who are in this fight, who want to see real change, who want to speak up and say, I'm not okay with a DA standing up and saying in court, I represent the people of the state of blank, because that's in your name. They're acting in your name and on your behalf. So if you don't agree with what they're doing, then you need to stand up and use your voice and use your time and use your money and get involved and that's how we're going to change the system. I feel like the DA and the community should have some sort of partnership. What do you think that partnership between community and a district attorney should look like? Well, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office has a asset forfeiture fund. They have basically money that has come from criminal enterprises in the amount of approximately $750 million right now. Wow. And it's a huge, huge amount of money. And as district attorney, I would use that money to invest in communities, to have participatory funding, to have people who understand what's going on, to talk to these groups that are actually doing the work on the ground, that are involved, that understand that we need violence interrupters and social workers, not police officers going into communities when people are experiencing crises, that we need to take and wield that very immense power and also money by giving it away. And that's how I understand things from having spent my career as a public defender. And that's how I will operate as a district attorney. Uh, and you know, I can't let this interview end without asking you about Survivor. <laughs> 
You were on two seasons of Survivor. My best friend, Allah, is absolutely obsessed with you. I don't know if I ever told you that. Um, Yeah. So now that you're in politics, I'm just wondering which one is more cutthroat? Uh, We'll see. (laughs) I mean, it's hard to say, but I've spent far more of my time in a courtroom and fighting for justice than I ever spent in front of TV cameras. But I do think that reality TV fans can be very harsh. And so I think it's given me thick skin to be ready for any attacks that come my way politically. Well, Eliza, I wish you all the luck and best in the world. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. I think most Americans believe that after you commit a crime and pay your debt to society, the punishment ends. You have the chance to rebuild your life and get a fresh start. But the reality is much harsher. We punish people with criminal records long after they've paid their debt to society. And we all suffer for it. Even simply being accused of a crime is just the beginning of perpetual punishment. A cycle of legalized discrimination, poverty, and reincarceration. A cycle kept in motion by 47,000 laws and regulations nationwide that restrict critical rights and opportunities. After contact with the criminal justice system, millions of Americans are denied employment and housing, denied college educations, excluded from public benefits, separated from their children, deported despite being legal residents, and deprived of the right to vote. These restrictions trap the poor and people of color in invisible cages that extend far beyond prison walls and criminal courts. One of the greatest travesties of the criminal justice system is the impact it has on communities of color when it comes to voting. Too many states take away felons' rights to vote, some for life. When that's combined with the systemic racism which puts huge numbers of people of color in prison, it disenfranchises whole entire communities. We've taken away the political power of black and brown Americans to change oppressive systems, and that is just plain anti-American. And when we have successfully given felons voting rights back, Republicans in states like Florida have fought like hell to get in the way of those reforms. Everyone in America deserves the right to vote. If black votes don't matter, no votes matter. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.